Welcome to the fourth episode of the Loose Threads podcast. Joining me today is Doug Hand, who's a founding partner at Hand, Baldashin, and Ambergie, commonly known as HBA. And Doug is basically the fashion lawyer. If you were to Google fashion lawyer, he probably would come up first. Um, and that's not just because he's really good at SEO. He, he spent a career basically mastering this domain um, and has a, an amazing roster of clients that really make him the guy. Our talk was a really good overview of some of the major issues that come up at the intersection of fashion and the law. This includes the reactivity of the law in the sense that the law is always reacting to previous events, not anticipating future events. We talked about intellectual property protection, meaning things like trademarks, logos, and patterns. And given the challenges and international nature of fashion law today, where the right places are to pick your battles and where the right places are to let things go. We talked about the balance between speaking legalese and speaking creatively and how merging those two domains is crucial to his job. We talked about private equity's role in fashion and how sometimes the discipline they bring to organizations is much needed. We talked about the funny occurrence of designers losing rights to their own name when they name brands after themselves and then depart them. And we talked about some of the environmental aspects and regulations that are looming um, and what consumers and brands can do about them. Here's my talk with Doug Hand. So maybe the best place to start is tell tell us how you got into this kind of fashion niche that you're in um, and kind of what the thought process was of getting there. Uh, well, I, uh, <laughs> I went to law school and business school uh, at NYU. Um, and loved everything about being in my 20s in New York City, including um, the fashion scene, and uh, was always um, at events that were associated with fashion. Um, and coming up through um, NYU, you are afforded with um, opportunities to have summer internships at great law firms, top-tier law firms which I did every summer that I had an opportunity to do that. I ended up starting my practice at uh, Sherman and Sterling, which is a multinational thousand lawyer firm uh, doing mergers and acquisitions um, in New York City, but still on hours that I wasn't grinding away as an M&A associate, was doing many of the same things that I did as a student and staying with some of the you know same circles uh, creative circles that uh, that I ran with while I was in school. Um, about five, six years in, uh, Baldishin and Ambergie, who are my other two named partners, uh, both of whom uh, started the firm with me, were whispering in my ear about starting a boutique practice um, largely centered around mergers and acquisitions in corporate finance, but with companies where creativity, intellectual property was really the core asset. Um, and uh, so we started the firm, that's almost 14 years ago now. And um, that, uh, that small pitch from sort of a, a lawyer to lawyer perspective, because intellectual property may be a mouthful to people that aren't practitioners, um, has really resonated. I think that um, we've also come online as a boutique firm at the right time in terms of when a lot of companies that are creating IP uh, in the United States and in particular in New York uh, have also come online. 
so it sounds like there's a bit of your interest evolving towards there, but also we're, we're in this time now where if you look at stuff with the internet and intellectual property and all these things that, uh, you could say we're in quite a pressing time for this sort of work, um, where there are a lot of ambiguities and questions and gray areas that seem to be kind of, uh, being defined or redefined for the first time possibly, yeah. um, in, in these kind of years. I think again, as a, um, you know, when you're starting any business, it's nice to have a niche and to have specialization, uh, as a guy who still doesn't have gray hair, believe it or not, uh, after 20 years of practice. Um, I think when we, when we started the firm, there was a nod to some of the ageism that happens in the legal services industry. And the fact that, um, we were three young partners focusing in an area where actually youth could in some ways be described as an advantage in terms of using the technology, understanding the technology, understanding the industries, um, was, was not lost on us. You know, uh, this is not to say that, uh, I think law firms of, of 13 year olds should be running around <laughs> <laughs> practicing in these fields. I think there is, uh, you know, we, we each had almost a decade of, of prior experience before starting the firm, but I do think we were mindful to that. And, uh, you know, now that we've been practicing over 20 years, um, it's it's not something we worry about as much. But certainly at the formation stage, it was it was something to think about. An interesting place to start for me is I I was at some conference once and we were talking about uh, drones and journalism. And this will circle back in a second. And someone made a point there that, that stuck with me, which is that law is always reactive, not proactive in the sense of that the law is always reacting to things that happened already, as opposed to sometimes projecting out or anticipating what could happen. Um, and I'm curious kind of through that lens, how would you approach kind of where we sit, generally speaking, kind of when it comes to creativity, fashion and law today, um, in terms of where, where do these laws at all sit or, or maybe the better way is how do you balance kind of the the rapid clip that all this stuff moves at with the less rapid time span and, and pace that let's say the law moves at. Good question. Uh, let me unpack it a little bit. Um, <laughs> like a true NYU student. <laughs> but I, I guess one comment would be in many of the realms of creativity that, that I function in, in the fashion industry, um, you have creators who unfortunately, as startup businesses can't really afford some of the services that, that my firm provides, that other firms provide. Um, and so you want the law as it stands today and as it has stood, you know, in, in some cases in the intellectual property realm for decades to continue to encourage creativity and not have a regime where simply by bringing an action which a deep-pocketed, well-heeled counterparty can do, you can effectively take the creative force out of the marketplace. Um, so that's one just sort of overarching policy consideration that that I think the law should should pay heed to, particularly in this space. Um, that being said, the 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 counterpoint is always when the creative comes up with something novel. Um, how can that person or persons protect it adequately? Um, in apparel specifically, the notion of novelty is a, a difficult one because apparel 
almost without exception has a utilitarian function. I mean, not just covering, but, you know, uh, keeping you warm and uh, appealing to the common sense of decency <laughs> that we all have. Um, we find more of the, the legs, if you will, in terms of protection in accessories, some footwear, um, jewelry, where there's a bit more novelty that can be brought to bear um, on the item. And um, it makes more sense to perhaps protect it. But as you pointed out at the beginning of your question, it is a very slow moving process, not just developing legislation, but even for a client potentially protecting designs, given the seasonality and the cycle of fashion, by the time that you have a registration in an area of IP, the fashion itself may be gone. Right. And you presumably had a crystal ball at the beginning to know I'm going to budget to protect this design, but that's not a great way to run a business necessarily unless that's your focus as opposed to just coming up continually with creative, seasonally appropriate and story appropriate to the brand that you've created items. Totally. I think, yeah, it, to me, there, there are two interesting points here. The first would be that um, it, it seems like it, from, from what I've read, there's a very dis- deliberate consideration that uh, fashion cannot, design cannot be patented or protected, generally speaking, when it comes to apparel. Um, the second qu- part, though, is, is it, which is so interesting, is, is I think if you kind of look at fast fashion today and just the speed and the pace of all these things, there's, I mean... It's it, this is an extreme, but there's an interesting question there of like, will that will IP protection in the design sense at some point, or is it already obsolete in the sense that you mentioned of where like you can go through all the motions, but by the time you do that, your your the piece or whatever in question is likely less relevant to a significant degree than it was previously. Um, and there, there's there's a really interesting tension in there, I think, in, yeah. especially in terms of how it will evolve. There, there's an obvious, you know, there's there's a business analysis that needs to go on, but to the degree the items are more utilitarian, um, actually may have some some functionality, whether that is is utilizing technology or uh, some true design uh, difference. We're finding some of that in fabrics, for instance. Mm. Um, it, it rarely is worth it. Um, and I, I think by far in the US, the, the most advisable portion of your intellectual property portfolio, if you, if you will, for, for a fashion brand, um, is the trademark. And, and just to back up a little bit, just to give some context to, to where the trademark sits w- with respect to the other forms of IP, um, copyright is another uh, area of intellectual property protection, which for fashion companies usually only amounts to the protection of patterns um, and certain other um, designs on the garment or on the the, right. the accessory. And then design patent is uh, a fairly high bar in terms of where that protection would sit. You don't see many of them uh, ever for apparel. Um and again, the process is both expensive and long. And so the advice from most IP practitioners is focus on your brand, focus on each season distinguishing yourself, and create the story that is your brand and the goodwill inherent to that story 
protect that because it is much more protectable. So for instance, um, any brand, um, Burberry, when I say the word for many listeners, there are thoughts that run through your head. English legacy, the plaid, obviously, um, maybe driving around in a, a Jaguar or a Jaguar <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, kind of latching into everything that, that you feel that brand represents. Um, that is in a sense, the story, and that's the goodwill that they have built up over time, which has value and is protectable. And so Burberry being a good example of one where it's not just the word Burberry that's protected, but the plaid itself has trademark protection. And that's how uh, broad trademark protection can be in certain instances. It is really any signifier of the brand that consumers recognize as such. So the Burberry plaid, um, the stripes on Adidas, you know, these are things that aren't the brand name, but they are signifiers of the brand and, and can be protected. That's really interesting because to, to me, to, to extrapolate that basically means that instead of basically trying to lock down every single asset that you ever create, it's basically to focus on the essential, you know, reusable, often used pieces that are going to resonate. Um, so it's, you know, it, like you said, it's not the dress, it's, it's the logo or the, the insignia on the dress that, that are going to repeat themselves, which to me seems like a very um, more realistic approach than to just patent copy sue for everything. Um, it certainly is financially. Yeah. Um, and the law also supports that protection. Hmm. So, uh, you know, uh, any, any good business lawyer is advising a business and, and there's an evaluation to be made there. Um, we, I think, you know, uh, just provide the facts and provide uh, the, the likelihood of certain designs being protectable. Um, but certainly the trademark is, um, is, is cheaply protected and must be protected. And it's not just a U.S. analysis, right? Because every legal jurisdiction outside of the U.S. Um, has its own trademark regime, its own intellectual property regime. Um, so this can still get expensive pretty quickly if you are a global brand. And there aren't many brands these days that, that would aren't. consider themselves regional, yeah. right? Huh. Yeah. That, that's super interesting because, I mean, to me, it seems like just a... Uh, a, a massive can of worms of like you think you're fine in the u.s which is maybe relatively straightforward but the second you you expand or you pick up a stock list in asia or something like that like it it seems like it changes the game a bit and i mean are you dealing do you deal with stuff internationally we do, we do and um it's it's interesting some regimes china being one that that i can point to as you know one that is difficult for brands to deal with um as a first to file jurisdiction. What, what I mean by that um, is anyone in China uh, who's Chinese can file a trademark application irrespective of whether or not they're actually using it in commerce. Here in the US, there is a requirement that you are using the brand in commerce to be able to obtain a registration. Not so in China. What that permits people to do um, and some of them do this serially, um, is simply kind of troll the press uh, for current brands, emerging brands, and immediately file, um, not necessarily use the brand, but then send the brand a letter 
saying <laughs> right it's the silicon and, and, the silicon valley equivalent of the patent troll yeah precisely yeah precisely and cheaper to do because uh, you know a patent application is still quite expensive interestingly um cuba has emerged as a jurisdiction which is also first to file so we are right now in the process of advising all of our clients um subject to budget that cuba um which is a market that's opening up now is um is definitely a box that they should check. That's so interesting. How how do you balance or kind of spend your time between speaking the you know the legal language of all this with the creative language? Which I don't. I I feel like it's hard pressed to find an industry that would mix them like where where you would have to be in a position where you have to mix both of those. So like they're so interconnected. Um, and I'm curious how you kind of navigate that. And also you know I I think especially if you look at a lot of emerging brands today tend to be started by these designers who coming out of school, maybe don't have, you know, the most uh, in-depth business experience ever of how, how, how you both balance that, but then also translate it um, in a way that, you know, the professionals that make up a lot of this world can understand and uh, partake in. Yeah. It's, it's a challenge. And that is one of, uh, one of the things we look for in associates after we get through the credentials and the, and the work experience, um, the ability to communicate with creatives is essential in what we do because we're not making decisions for our clients. That's not the role. We are an instrument. We're like a rifle. You point at something <laughs> and we will hit what you point us right. at, but we need to understand where you're, where you're aiming. Yeah, precisely. Um, that can be a challenge, particularly with these startup brands because they're so busy. You know, they're handling everything on top of which they don't necessarily have the same, shall I say, just left-brained, rational right. makeup that most lawyers do. And what, what can be wonderful about the relationship is they look at us sometimes <laughs> and think that we're magicians. Wow, God, you can, you can read through that 80-page document and come back to me with the five issues and articulate them. That's great. That's magic. And, you know, we... we <laughs> it makes us feel very good. Yeah, yeah. It makes all of us feel very good. We obviously feel what they do is magic. Um, and I, I think our arguments are stronger that what they do is magic. <laughs> but um, so I think we both look for and I think that what we provide to our clients is that breaking down into digestible issues lists and, and reference points what the issues are. That coupled with just the fact that we, this is the only industry I practice in. So I do know what's market in many, many contexts. I don't have to guess. I don't have to really make my client guess. I can look back at 20 recent transactions where this particular issue came up or this contractual provision. And I know where the goalposts are. So that's helpful for them as well. But Undoubtedly, there are always several issues that they are going to have to decide, and it's about eliciting that from them before their eyes glaze over and they've moved on to the design team wants me right. and I'm I'm you know I'm headed downstairs. <laughs> totally. When 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 we were working on our own line, there was always you know you read a lot about how some people would peg the estimate that you know running a fashion brand is eighty percent business, twenty percent design. Yet the focus and the talents of the people tend to be probably the opposite of that, or at least their interests and how they would spend their time. 
Um, and it, it, it creates a very interesting dilemma where, I mean, I just like, I mean, for me to even think of all the things that like, we're not, not that they were legally wrong, but just legal, legally questionable or working with factories that you don't even want to know, or even the environmental repercussions. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's like a massive web that I can, I, I mean, I'm interested in the business and the law stuff. So if I find it interesting, I can only imagine what one who just wants to design all day, how, how that goes over them. It's um, one of the, the difficulties I think with startup businesses in, in our field is um, they aren't necessarily budgeting properly. And I'm not saying that because they're not budgeting enough for legal. I just mean the business aspects. They're very focused and slanted towards the marketing and PR spend. And now there are, you know, so many, so many emerging projects that they can spend money on. Uh, they can, you know, think about, well, our e-com really needs to be built out and we're working with this marketing company who's going to help us do that. And we're going to, you know, we're, we're, we're going to expand a, a technology um, initiative to, to, you know, be on the cutting edge of this technology that relates to a common cart or whatever it is. There are a lot of um, pie in the sky and, and some of them I think will play out and some of them we're seeing play out, but it's very hard to know. And it's very hard if you're, if your basic training was not in technology or not in law or not in accounting or business, but in design to know which of those you should be following up on. If your goal is to have a, a viable, profitable, business. <laughs> well, I was going to say, you know, apparel, accessories, yeah. jewelry, you know, business, First and foremost, the, 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 the basics of law and accounting and business need to be adhered to. That's, that's just fundamental and budgeted for. After that, once that's tight, once you know you're not building on sand, then the other you know more pie-in-the-sky initiatives can be sought, right. but um, you don't find old designers singing from that choir book. Totally. And I think that last analogy basically with, is that like, if you can set a really good foundation of just having all your ducks in a row, there's the potential to do all these things. Um, and kind of in that sense, I'm curious what you think, um, is kind of the, um, the responsibility of, uh, educators in the sense, be it design schools and in other places like that to maybe start to realign their curriculum or focus in terms of, you know, there's no doubt these, a lot of these graduates are incredible designers, but is, is the split of their time, which I don't know, I mean, one could guess is 90% design, 10% other. Um, is that aligned correctly for today's world? And, yeah. and should that be adjusted? Well, I think traditionally uh, design schools have not necessarily been grooming their students to be entrepreneurs through no fault of their own, I think the traditional path right. has been more of an apprenticeship type path where you you go up through the ranks, you spend a decade or more at a best-in-class design house, and then you think about whether or not you have the... <laughs> spot, yeah. To, to, to start your own company. Right. Um, and at that point, I think the assumption is you probably have met enough people on the business side and you've seen it in house wherever you were to be able to, to make that decision on an informed basis. Um, decade, decade and a half ago, you know, we saw this, 
this model of, you know, the Proenza guys coming out of school and just wowing the world. And it seemed like that coupled with a lot of the, the emerging talent awards seemed to kind of encourage that newness. Um, and there is no doubt that in terms of design, um, they're all great talents. But what I would say is, is there, there is no doubt in my mind whatsoever that not all of those brands should have necessarily been standalone businesses. Um, but that's the only way, you know, in, in, to, to get your name out there and your product out there immediately. And maybe we can flip into this. I mean, you know, the barriers to entry are pretty low, right? It's when you understand what most fashion companies are, they don't own their own factories, right? So they don't control the means of their own production, but they also don't have to pay for them. They also, until fairly recently, don't seek to own their their consumer relationship. Right, the distribution. Whole, exactly. So wholesale accounts have really controlled the sales side of it, and they could sit in the middle, um, or they're cursed to sit in the middle, depending upon how you look at it, but in terms of barriers to entry, they can sit in the middle, simply design, pay for sample production, and go out and sell it, and then if they can bridge the cash flow bridge to get to delivery of their wholesale accounts when the wholesale accounts finally paid. The big if. R- right. Um they were a viable brand and you could do that almost by flipping a switch, you know, a few startup costs, but you could be in business. And if you had some sizzle behind you coming out of school, that certainly happened. And and several of those brands obviously are, are still in existence and, and some are thriving. So I'm not going to say that's a bad model, but it may ultimately have been a disservice to everyone who came up through those ranks expecting that that was the way to do it without some training in basic entrepreneur entrepreneurship most of which i find is be comfortable knowing what you don't know and go find somebody who can help you with that totally um yeah i mean it makes me think of okay so we fixed this barrier barrier to entry problem which is great but it's now there's the barrier to success right and like (laughs) You can you can start for incredibly cheaply. I mean, I'm sure you could start for under a thousand bucks or whatever it is, but you're now part of the 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 noise, and then it's like, how do you become the signal again? Well, which and is, you're you're arguably you you just your playing field is quicksand, right? Because until you get to a a solid place that I find to be around five ten million in in sales, where you've reached a level where you have a loyal customer. And your wholesale accounts give you better terms, um, and and you know you're still hot, right? And your sell throughs are still solid. You are bridging. You're you're providing financing to your wholesale accounts. You're often being forced to pay on very very quick terms your your right. production partners, and you can get behind the eight ball very quickly. And I've seen it happen, and it's it's sad to see it happen. But um, that systemically is, is a fairly broken part of the equation. It can be bridged, obviously, by, by factoring. Um, it can be bridged longer term by direct relationships with customers. I mean, I know some brands that really often season to season have gotten by on, on trunk shows and you know friends and family sales. Um, it can also be bridged if, if there is enough 
um, notoriety around that brand by collaborations and licensing opportunities. But again, with small emerging brands, those, those little one-offs, they're not very high margin and they can be brand dilutive. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it brings to mind a bit of this conversation about the fashions, fashion cycle going too quickly and all this buy show now, buy now stuff. And I mean, to me, there's a bit of noise around that, but there's, there's kind of this underlying question of like, I mean, you said it, like something is broken there. The question is, you know, who, who will change something and what will it be? I think is much, is much of a more unanswered question. And part of me also thinks that the speed at which is moving, there's almost no time for anyone to think about it because, um, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I, I've been perplexed by this. I know we, I've, I've wrote a little piece about this in business fashion about, uh, kind of the factoring retailer payment relationship thing, which had some interesting results. Um, but there's, I don't know, there's, there's something there that I, it just seems off to me. Well, I, in terms of the, the, the basic financial bridge of the cash flow, factors do stand there to, to serve that role. And some of them are very good. Um, the problem really for them as well is they can only take so much risk, right? So they're not only taking the risk that the brands don't have the staying power, but they're taking the risk on each. And, and the smaller brands tend to have followings with boutique you know, small, sometimes mom and pop regional shops. So the factor has to step into the position of taking that risk on. And that's, that's a hard place to be. There aren't many people who do it, many, many firms that do it, um, well for emerging designers. And, um, you know, I, I don't think the, the industry as a whole, like most industries, I mean, it's not going to turn on a dime. Technology is not going to solve this overnight. And, um, it's, it's not even a, you know, we're not at the 11th hour or anything. I mean, the, you know, the, the industry has always had, um, negative business elements to it. I, I think you could argue in some ways today, it's, it's, it's more open and more potentially fertile to emerging talent than ever before. Um, and that's why you see maybe some of the, the, quote unquote losers, the ones that, that fail cast in, in a stark relief because, um, the ones that, that succeed, you know, uh, there's such a, such a difference there, but maybe there wouldn't be as many brands out there if so there certainly wouldn't be as many brands out there if there was no bridge financing, cause they just couldn't do it. And you'd have, you'd have brands that had deep pocketed relationships from day one or the more traditional that person who left after 20 years at a major house um, who had convinced someone maybe even that major house themselves to invest in the brand so that they could get past the first eight seasons to get sort of their fawn legs under them and hopefully succeed. I'm curious uh, uh, to talk a bit about kind of the investor side of this because to me to me there there kind of there there's an interesting dilemma between to me there seems like a bit there's kind of like in the same way why people like investing in Hollywood movies they they love the cachet they love seeing their name in the credits there's there's something very cool about being involved in a fashion brand the flip side of that is 
part of me thinks that there are much better investments out there. And like, there's, you know, it's a, there, there's significant risk to this. The, 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 the question of returns are a big question. I mean, that's a question there. Um, I'm curious how, you know, you, you think or have seen people kind of approach this and rationalize it in the sense of, you know, I, it obviously makes sense for a place like LVMH or Caring that is, you know, built upon this thing to understand how to do these. Um, but a lot, as a, as a lot of these other brands grow and, you know, you see these new startups that are a lot of funded by friends and family and other, you know, being plugged in the community. I'm interested in how one would actually kind of evaluate this correctly. Cause it, on, on the, on the facade, it looks incredible, but in the weeds, it's, it's brutal. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I can, uh, we, we do a tremendous amount of M&A work in the industry and um, on both sides, but but usually on the side of the brand. So, you know, the issuer, not the investor. Um, it It is a challenge for the investor, and I'm not going to advocate for the investor, but I, but I fully recognize the challenge that investing in a fickle industry with certainly at times in the case of an eponymous brand, for sure, but even a non-eponymous brand, but where the designer or designers are, are intimately associated with that brand, you don't have very diversified risk. If your designer gets hit by a bus, you're screwed. But, you know, the, the, the practical, if your designer just kind of ends up having two kids and kind of fading out and not being as interested, you're still screwed. If your designer simply ages out from relevance, yeah, yeah, the consumers that they were speaking to in their 20s or 30s, those are all risks that are so hard to evaluate, extremely hard to evaluate. Moreover, very hard to address contractually because on the sort of I'm going to stop showing up for work past 3.30, I mean... You can put tight obligations in an employment agreement and you can put consequences in there, but ultimately you can't force someone to work. You know, slavery is against the law. So, um, you know, there, there, there are a lot of draconian provisions that, uh, that get sought to be put in those employment agreements. I do view at early stages, those employment agreements as big parts of the overall M and a transaction. As, as much as the, you know, stock purchase agreement or, you know, the, the, the convertible note or, um, but they are fraught with the potential for not being enforceable, for instance. But by that, I mean, you know, it's great to say, well, I'm going to disincentivize my designer from ever leaving the brand by having a five-year non-compete. After they're terminated or they walk away, they, they can't right. design for five years. Well, you may have issues getting that enforced. Uh, try that in California, right? You know, unless it's <laughs> unless you're going to pay them for five years. Um, right. So you know those are those are difficult issues for an investor to uh, to address. Um, but it gets done, and it gets done. I don't think just because the industry is kind of fun to be around. It gets done because right. there are some examples of of fantastic valuations that have been achieved by right. brands that have that have broken out and, and there's money there's plenty of money to be made yes absolutely i mean this is a huge industry and um you know it's it's not going away and it has when you build a brand whether that's based initially on accessories or apparel or jewelry it also can resonate in other areas i mean look at what vera wang did 
just on the basis of, of starting with bridal. You know, Vera Wang has an empire. A lot of those are licensing deals. I mean, we can talk about right. nuts and bolts of sort of licensed brands versus, you know, kind of home-owned brands. Right. But it, it certainly shows what you can do with a viable brand back to that sort of story of what it represents. And if you have that story, Ralph Lauren maybe being the greatest example of creating that story, um, it, it has tendrils that go into all lifestyle sectors, right. cosmetics, perfume, uh, travel, um, car interiors. I mean, <laughs> really, you right. name it. Um, but it does take a while to get there. But that's, that's the grail that a lot of investors would be chasing. I, I think an interesting part of this, and, and I'm not uh, as familiar with it, but I'm interested by it, is kind of the growth of private equity's involvement in fashion as well. Um, and I'm, I'm just more curious like to hear kind of how, if you have any thoughts or insight on how, how we got there and kind of what, because they bring a very different approach than, let's say, the friends and family investor or even the venture capitalist, which is uh, maybe generally speaking that they, you know, they're looking for returns in five to eight years a bit. They, 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 have, a, they have a time horizon in their mind, yep. generally speaking. And so um, that to me seems like an interesting development as well in terms of you get into the financing of this. And I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I mean, we, we work opposite a lot of private equity firms who've put money into many of our clients. Um, the, the, the initial message to our clients is this is an investor that has, they're not hiding their agenda. Their agenda right. is is right there on their website. Right. Returns. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, so I don't think any of them are disingenuous in that regard. Um, and they do, again, just to just to maybe back up some of your listeners, you know, what, what a private equity firm represents uh, is a fund, a, a pooled fund of other people's money, right? The LPs of the fund right. are looking to the private equity firm to give them a return on their capital. So- they have a mandate. They've got to find a home for this money, a home that will make this money bigger. You know, yeah, bigger. And um, they also have a timeline on on that return, which you know five years would be on on the short end, but you know seven eight years, it's it's got to start coming back. And so the brand needs to understand that something needs to happen. Some liquidity event is going to need to happen within that window. Um, and the private equity firm is going to, is going to drive that. And if during that window, there just doesn't seem to be a good exit, it's going to be a bad exit and that's never going to be great for the founders. Um, but the flip side of what a private equity firm can, can provide, I mean, they represent a lot of portfolio companies. They have tremendous knowledge. They have advisory boards that have deep industry knowledge, and they provide that, hopefully for not too much of a fee. <laughs> I mean, sometimes the dirty little secret with some private equity firm fees is they put money in, and then they kind of suck it out through charging right. an annual fee for those services. But- I don't think any private equity firm is doing it to to get the fees. Right. Obviously, they want uh, they, they want to grow the brand, and um, it is a, a way that uh, that that brands can tap into that and obviously make use of the capital, which um, the private equity firm wants used for growth, uh, and hopefully get to an exit event for the private equity firm where the founders may still may still be involved mm. because if the founders are also the creatives, usually 
during that ex- exit scenario, whether it's M&A to you know, a big conglomerate, LVMH buys from the private equity firm or an IPO, whoever that investor is, whether it's the public or LVMH, still wants to see the designer involved. Right. There, I mean, I, I, I'm not at all against it. I think there's actually a really interesting case to be made that um, private equity and other kind of firms like that bring an incredible amount of discipline to an industry and a, a, sometimes a company that is somewhat looser and a little more flimsy than it necessarily should be. And so I, th- I think there's a really interesting case of, you know, hey, you know, you guys understand brand incredibly well, your sales are going well, but, you know, we want to just put this under some a bit of strain in a good way. And I think there, there's a lot of interesting things that can come out of that, actually. I think the challenge is more on the venture side where um, you may find some of the best opportunities for investment too small for, you know, even the smallest venture capital group right. to really look at. Um, right or wrong, unfortunately, you know, doing a deal, doing a transaction involves a lot of high-paid advisors like like me, <laughs> like an investment right. banker potentially, um, the transaction costs around raising money are high. And if you're going to spend fifty, a hundred thousand dollars, which is which is cheap to get a right. deal done, um, to raise a million dollars, that's disproportionate amount of your funds going out the door to pay for Getting the money funds, coming yeah. in. So, so there is that structural disadvantage to some of the smaller brands. Um, but you, you can see potential solutions on the horizon, you know, um, some, some crowdfunding initiatives. I mean, you know, we may see some expansion there. Um, and I'm all for that. I mean, I, I really do think that there are some extremely viable brands who could use both the discipline that you're speaking of in terms of more institutional investors, uh, but also just use the capital. Right. So one of the most interesting kind of examples of this intersection of law in the fashion industry is what has kind of happened recently where um, a, a person starts a brand, an eponymous brand, names it after themselves. They then leave or in some capacity and kind of what happens from my understanding is basically the loss of rights to their own name in a fashion business. And that to me is such an interesting uh occurrence that is like somewhat only something that only would happen in the fashion industry in a sense, although I know it isn't, but it just feels right. Um, and I'm curious kind of what you, what your thoughts are generally on that. And then how, how does one approach that decision of, okay, do I put my name on the door? And then knowing what comes along with that in the long term. Right. Well, it, it may not surprise you to learn that if, if someone comes in here with a completely blank slate and says, we're starting a fashion company that my advice will be, don't name it after yourself. <laughs> right. <laughs> don't, don't invest the, the, the decision that you may have to make, whether it's investment time or outright sale of the company, a, a, a legacy decision, one that your children and your grandchildren will, will care about, you know, what you made, come up with a brand name. There are plenty out there, probably more than, than, you know, proper names, yeah. <laughs> um, which can be confusing. But um, no, it does strike people as odd that you can lose control of your name. Um, just to be clear on that, I mean, you really, you're not losing control of your name. You can sign documents. You, right. you can still be John Doe. You just can't use John Doe as a trademark. And therein lies some of the, just the gray area of what that, means. Joseph, the Joseph Abood case, 
which now has become moot because he's back with his company, which does tend to happen, right? There's a gravitational pull to go back mm-hmm. to the company that you started. Um, ask Jill Sander, who left and came back and right. left and came back and left and came back. Um, but um, during the pendency of, of the resolution of that, uh, Mr. Abood was uh, using his name in a non-trademark-like fashion, um, in connection with, and I think it was JA, or I've forgotten the name of the brand that he started, um, but it was by Joseph Abood. Um, he could use by Joseph Abood as long as it didn't amount to trademark use. So obviously it's a factual designation. Right. And if someone's reporting on, hey, what's this new JA brand? Well, it's designed by Joseph Abood. That's factual. You can say uh-huh. that. Um, but what you can't do is, you know, is, is re- reboot and restart a brand under that name. Um, I, I will also comment that the Abood case, I mean, it, it represents an interesting contractual law reading, which um, is somewhat in the, the minutia mm-hmm. of the, you know, if you come to my, my course at NYU <laughs> or Cardoza, I, well, I'll we'll regale you it, with yeah. it. Um, but um, in any event, it, it's, um, it's an area where we tread very delicately with clients. We understand that that a decision to sell your company, if it also bears your name, is an intensely personal one. And trust me, investors do too. I'm quite certain that most investors of eponymous brands would wish that it wasn't an eponymous brand, right? right? Because there is also, you've captured some of the risk inherent of the brand's goodwill in a person that the investor can't control. So much better to come up with, you know, an agnostic, uh, descriptive, brand-appropriate name, whatever that means to the brand story you're creating. Right. Um, yeah, War- Warby Parker come to, comes to mind as a <laughs> first and last name that is not at all related that gives them the freedom to not use their... Well, it's interesting, you know, um, the the former CEO of J.P. Todd's in the U.S., um, is, is a friend of mine we used to, well, while he was living here, we used to play a lot of tennis. And, and during a break, um, he sort of mentioned to me, because we were, we were handling some of the, some of the trademark work, um, how the J.P. Todd's name actually came up was the founder back in, I think, the 60s or 70s was trying to sell uh, his wares in Boston and didn't have a brand name associated with it. And flipped open a Boston telephone book <laughs> and just kind of thumbed Pointed, through yeah. and just grabbed it. Thought huh. that sounds appropriately, you know, waspy or northeastern. <laughs> let's let's grab it. Um, but yeah, there's you know the, these things can be fictionalized, and obviously consumers today get to the bottom of what is real and right. what isn't real. So you do need to be careful about that. But I do think the um, what we've seen now for hundreds of years, which is really, you know, designers applying their own name almost out of a sense of I'm the artist, therefore, you know, my signature goes in the, the bottom right hand corner, yeah. right? That's not necessary. You're you're creating a brand story. You will get the appropriate, you know, um, credit, even if you you don't have your name above the storefront. And trust right. me, long term. When it comes to selling it, you'll be happy your name isn't above the storefront. <laughs> totally. Um, I, I'm curious kind of about the where, where kind of the environmental um, aspect comes into this. Because I feel like there, I, I've, I've read very little um, or 
we've heard a lot about this kind of looming environmental problem of be it the consumption, be it uh, the dying process, be it the factory and the workers and all those things. Um, but to me, it's a lot of it's a lot of very important discussion that's been happening. But um, f- there, there's been less so actually action on that or or conclusive results from maybe where I sit. And I'm curious, kind of if if one, if you think there's something looming here in the sense that we're going to see a lot of, it's not recourse, but there's going to be a lot of activity coming soon on this environmental front of ethical fashion. And, um, you know, are, are, are these things, you know, is, is this thing ruining water? Is this, are these, you know, are these dyes hurting people and, you know, all those things. Um, and how maybe how one can, um, not protect themselves, but be aware of it. Cause like, I mean, when we were working on our own thing, it was, you, we would feel in moments that we're tiptoeing into stuff that like should not be happening. But th- in a way, we had no clue how else to do what we were trying to do in the sense of like, you know, this right. fabric needs to go from white to red. The only way to get it red is to do some pretty bad. And like, you know, the, the dye house is going to do some things that are really bad for the environment, but there's almost like we were unaware of an alternative. So I'm just curious kind yeah. of how you process all that. I, I think one of the, so, so a very, a very current issue and um, one that, uh, one that a lot of brands wrestle with I think one of the difficulties in legislating it is it's it's a global issue and it takes place in a lot of jurisdictions where the legal regimes are not um, are not what they are here in the U.S. So I do think that it will be quite some time before you actually see regulation mandating how things must be made. Um, maybe you'll see that with respect to how things must be made in the U.S., but very little is made in the U.S. Um, ultimately. On, on the sort of fundamental um, dyeing and fabrication and some of, you know, quite a bit of the production as well. Um, there are a lot of issues that get bundled into this. You mentioned, you know, how, how labor is treated, which is obviously different than how the environment right. is impacted. Um, but these are all things that I think are, are leading towards um, disclosure, meaning that, I could foresee a regime where um, you have to disclose a lot more and not just on your label because people don't, you know, labels are already big enough and and long enough and, you know, um, but there, there, there may be mandated disclosure that we see on a lot of these areas where it's not that you must comply with something. You just have to say what you're doing or not doing. So if you're not, and, and this already is mandated in California, which makes it mandated for a lot of brands already because which brands don't sell in California. Um, if you do nothing about determining uh, what your Vietnamese labor force, not your Vietnamese labor force, but the, the, the Vietnamese labor force that is actually making your knitwear, right. for instance, then you have to say that. And certain consumers... Certain activists will latch onto that and say, hey, Brand X isn't doing anything about this labor issue in Vietnam. And they've put that on their website because they have to. Um, Makes it very easy for those activists to point to brands that are not what consumers may may think they are. And um, it, it becomes very destructive to the story if the story is about maybe not environmental consciousness, but what you've bought into somehow with this brand is some clean living aesthetic 
whether it's the way they shoot their campaigns or the models they use, it all seems very, very green, for lack of a better term. And yet you find out that it's not green. That can be extremely damaging to the brand. So I think that's where we're headed in the shorter term. Um, But um, very, very timely topic. Yeah. No, I I think that the the disclosure point is really interesting because arguably a lot of the issue now is just some sort of denial and or subterfuge or just uh, obfuscating the information. And like you said, you know, I think if basically the first step is making as close to fact visible as possible. And then what happens with with that information is to be determined. Um, But yeah, that's a really interesting approach of just let's, you know, could we just get the info out there first? In a- right. And if the public feels strongly enough about it, once right. they have that information, they can obviously propose additional legislation to, to mandate that, you know, nothing is made that way. Um, but enforcing that type of legislation somewhere like Vietnam, not to pick on Vietnam, you know, any Peru, uh, any country. I mean, we're talking so many jurisdictions when you talk about apparel and accessories manufacturing. Um, And, you know, if one jurisdiction has rules put on it that increase its cost of production, there are certainly brands that will just move to the next one where those those costs are not present. And so you can't deny that element of it as well. Um, Again, not to, you know, not to opine on sort of where I come out on this, but... It's, it's easy to sit here in the U.S. and say things shouldn't be made that way. Um, but that becomes a slippery slope when you're talking about jobs that people have. Um, although there, there have been some gross, gross, right. you know. And, and I think it's important for consumers to know that because then they can, they can right. impact and affect change. Um, but it does take some time. Totally. Um, I guess the last question I have for you is, what part of this of, of the job that do you learn the most from or has caused you to like to to learn as much as you can as quickly as you can i guess <laughs> i mean so just to you know my job um is really as a general generalist practitioner and so i think um whereas you know the first decade of my career i was doing mergers and acquisitions deals which there's a general aspect to that as well. You're buying and selling a company. And so every legal issue that attends that company, you, you, you deal with in some way, shape or form. Um, but I think now as a firm, um, we are an outsourced general counsel to a number of clients. And so, so many different things can come at us, come at us, um, as they would to an in-house GC. And I think, you know, it's, recognizing when things are becoming a trend and and being able to advise all clients to avoid something. Um, But by the same token, um, there are always going to be areas that um, we're 25 lawyers. So, you know, we're not going to handle everything. And um, being able to have a network of lawyers in the industry or who can practice in the industry with respect to this discrete legal issue that I'm presenting them with, um, that you know, is, is important. And, you know, so it's, it's not really a legal analysis. It's more a network, um, of lawyers that, uh, that we have that we can pull in 
on a spot basis to, to do things that are highly specialized. Gotcha. Um, I guess the last, last question, uh, which is a less of a stumpers is what, what is like the most enjoyable part of this for you? Because it seems, I don't know, you, it's, I, I feel like you enjoy this job and like the, the things I read and see of like, you, you seem to enjoy it unless I'm projecting that, but I'm curious. No, what no, specifically. I, I mean, I wish, um, I wish we had a few more of my lawyers in here. Cause I think, <laughs> I think they enjoy it too. It's, it's, you know, w- when we started and I told you part of why I'm here now is, is always being passionate about the creative force that um, that's inherent in fashion and art, um, and to be able to not add to the creativity, but help protect it or guide it or make it viable as a business and, and help these people continue to not only realize their vision, but bring it to life so that we can all enjoy it. It, it sounds pretty sappy, but it's, it, it gets you out of bed in the morning with a smile on your face yeah. and, um, it's incredibly gratifying. Yeah. It seems like there's a really like very crucial part of that, which is taking a lot of these things that would normally stump or just confuse or make someone go crazy, a designer off their plate and just letting them, a lot of it seems to be about focus and letting them focus on what that they are best at and, and you and others handling the things that they just know are not, you know, not for them to handle. Yeah. Um, yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for for doing this. It was was great talking to you. Thanks for coming into the office. Appreciate it.